seekers, explorers, and renegades out there, welcome to another episode of the Alchemy Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Lemke. Today I have the pleasure of uh, uh, welcoming Alan Evans and Bob Holbrook to the podcast. They are both from the um, Monterey Institute, and uh, Bob is uh, involved also with the Institute of Noetic Sciences as well as the Institute of uh, Heart Math. With both Alan and Bob having been involved in uh, these institutes for quite a while. They are well versed in the uh, aspects of the sciences behind uh, consciousness and energy, or subtle energy. So I thought it was a good opportunity to uh, bring them both on to talk through the uh, kind of research that's been done around uh, consciousness and uh, subtle energy and energy healing, uh, consciousness as it pertains to survival after uh, the physical death and so forth. Um, to understand, you know, what is, how is science coming to terms with consciousness, how is it defining it, how are we going about uh, actually measuring consciousness if we can even do that. So open your minds, open your hearts and uh, hold on to your hats and your seats uh, because this is going to be a wild ride looking at uh, different dimensions of what we might perceive as our realities. Enjoy! So today I'm bringing you a quote from Neville Goddard, uh, who's uh, probably uh, known to most of us. Uh, He uh, is quoted as saying that man moves in a world that is nothing more nor nor less than his conscience objectified. So we have the honor today of having Alan Evans and Bob Holbrook from the Monroe Institute in America with us, uh, or more specifically from uh, from uh, Virginia. Well, the only Alan is in Virginia, Bob is in <laughs> Illinois, but <laughs> geographic location nonetheless. So I figured I'll uh, just kind of introduce uh, the two of you and uh, then uh, you can in- individually uh, fill in the blanks that I may have missed. So, um, so Alan, uh, she is the acting president and executive director at the Monroe Institute, uh, newly uh, appointed, I should point out. So congratulations again. Um, you have a background in psychology and you have an MBA. Uh, you've been a trainer for 10 plus years and you're, you're, you're the creator of the energy medicine program, right? Right. Um, and, uh, but you also, you're, you took up the position as chief program officer, and then you were hastily appointed, <laughs> promoted uh, into your current position. But that, that is the position that you are kind of supposed to go back to, right? Uh, well, it depends. I have applied for the permanent position. All right, excellent. Well, we'll see who steps into those shoes <laughs> later then. But, uh, so, but you've been instrumental in uh, developing the uh, virtual program and the, uh, the new expand app. Uh, from the Monroe Institute. Um, so uh, I, I, I would uh, dare to say that you're uh, kind of partly responsible for bringing the Monroe Institute into the uh, 21st century, right? <laughs> sure, I'll take credit. Okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> and actually with the, the app, um, I'm more of the content development side of that. Um, Bob is, he, when we get to Bob, he can tell you what he's doing with the app. All right, excellent. So yeah, Bob, you're... Uh, 
director of technology. So that, that kind of explains that role uh, <laughs> in terms of the app. Um, but you have, which I very interesting here, you have a background in anthropology and psychology, as well as archaeology, uh, which I thought was uh, very curious. And the uh, also, and I'm going to ask you to go into a little more depth with uh, what this is about. The society, you're involved in the uh, Society for the Anthropology of uh, Consciousness. Um, you're also involved with the Institute for Noetic Sciences and certified provider with the Institute of Heart Math. That is correct, right? Yes. Okay, excellent. Uh, so, yeah, tell, tell me a little bit about the the Society for the Anthropology of Consciousness. What's that? Uh, well, it's just part of the American Anthropological Association, um, which is, you know, a, a professional organization that, you know, is anthropologists belong to. I um, am particularly interested in consciousness. And so there's a group of anthropologists that, you know, look cross-culturally and through time at you know different aspects of you know what is consciousness and how is it perceived you know in different places and gives us a broader picture so it's it's a it's a group of people that i really like to follow their work and um and it helps inform me in the work that i do so i like very that nice very nice well anything to uh, uh promote the uh, the concept of consciousness and we'll get to that a little bit more as we go along here but uh, as uh, Alan was saying you're also involved in all these new technologies that you're developing at Monroe Institute obviously because you're director of technology so you want to share a little bit about your work there? Sure when um, the Monroe Institute began with Robert Monroe um, the technology that he used was um, binaural beat technology mm -hmm. which was um, you know, he really was able to manifest some very um, important and successful use of that. Um, coming from those days in the 1970s to today, the, with, you know, the digital explosion and the plugins and the workstation, he couldn't have even imagined the tools that we have available to us today. As an anthropologist, you know, I can tell you that what we're doing now has been done for thousands and thousands of years. And we're just doing it in a different, more technical way that's appropriate for, you know, the world we live in now, the advanced, you know, technological civilization. So, you know, I call us techno shamans. So um, I use that ancient, you know, knowledge or, you know, indigenous people that I've worked with and, you know, explored their ritual and ceremony and things like that. So it goes, you know, our development began thousands of years ago, and now we're bringing it to a, a modern, highly technical, which you think, well, do you really need all that technology? No, you don't. You know, you don't have to have that to have, you know, an expanded awareness, but it's very helpful and it helps people realize that maybe this is a path they could be on. So um, it's really fascinating how we're able to unfold different audio you know applications and ideas and and technologies to help people reach those expanded states of awareness quite easily and um, consistently and so that's what i i really enjoy doing yeah uh as alan mentioned before i i have uh, taken part in the uh, the uh, gateway experience at uh, the monroe or not at the monroe institute in the us but here in the uk um 
and uh, yeah, it it is interesting how that technology works, and that's the uh, that's the uh, uh, Bob Monroe uh, binaural beat technology predominantly that was used there. Um, but it is interesting how you can notice after a couple of days, you know, you're meditating essentially for five five hours a day, and after a couple of days, your your brain is is like you've been lifting weights with it, um, and it's uh, it's interesting how, uh, you know, I've been meditating for quite a while. I started meditating back in early nineties. Uh, funnily enough, it was the uh, military in Sweden when I was doing the officers training program that we were taught how to meditate. Uh, they call it re- relaxation, but it was meditation. So it was uh, inter- uh, interesting place to <laughs> start that journey. Um, but the the yeah, being able to just go deep like that, um, you know, I can do it with breathing, but just by sitting there listening to it, and it's like you, you try to resist it, and you can't really. It's like it just brings you down. <laughs> amazing so and uh, yeah i use the expand up as well now and it's uh, it's uh, amazing so uh, anyone out there rec- d- definitely recommend it and i'm not paid to say that by the way so <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's look at uh, the topic for today which is and this might be a little delayed in <laughs> sharing the topic but uh, wanted to look at the the science behind consciousness uh, the science behind consciousness and subtle energy, you know, all of these things we do in terms of energy healing, out-of-body experiences, remote viewing, all of these different things, you know, uh, looking at what the science or what scientific research that's being done, uh, you know, what's the historical development and what does the future look like? Um, and uh, Bob, it's, uh, I know from your point of view, you, you're involved with uh, a lot of different organizations as well, um, so that you can bring some of that experience in, and we appreciate that. And Alan, of course, you, you've been in the energy business for a long time now, so <laughs> you will definitely bring a lot of uh, that value too. Um, from my perspective, I find the fundamental problem or the fundamental challenge we have is uh, in defining consciousness to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, science, if you go to someone who's, uh, you know, physicist or uh, other type of science, uh, science person, will typically try to describe uh, consciousness as a product of physicality. So it's a product of your brain, which means that once your brain stops working, your consciousness stops working. So that kind of gives a start and a finish. Uh, some of us would then uh, feel more that uh, consciousness is conveyed through the physicality. So now where, where do we stand in terms of the def- definition? Because you kind of have to define what it is that you're going to measure and learn about, right? So I'll uh, throw it out, and uh, Alan or Bob, you want to take it up? <laughs> well, sure, and and you're correct that there is. I don't. I've not found one, you know, single definition for consciousness. And in fact, not only is there not a single agreed upon definition, there's considerable argument 
and in some areas about what it is or is not. And so um, I think that is probably uh, a goal that that would be worthy of pursuing, realizing that you may never actually get to the solution. Um, conscious in our Monroe Institute perspective, consciousness is infinite. So how do you describe infinity? You know, I'm, it's, it's really big. <laughs> so especially the last part. No, but, um, but, but, you know, we have to go with a certain set of assumptions. Yeah. And, um, and I like this idea of um, the science of consciousness. Um, because I was on that road, I have to be able to prove this to the scientific community in an acceptable way with formal research that is undeniable, and then consciousness is real, and nobody can argue about it. Well, that is a losing battle, mm -hmm. and part of the reason for that is, I think, what I came across, because I've done quite a bit of scientific and engineering training, schooling, and um, the other question could or the other perspective could be asked too: the consciousness of science. Science, formal science is allowed to make all kinds of assumptions and nobody questions that. And then they build these grand models and theories and this is this objective, this is the way the world works or the universe or whatever. But that same, what would you say, uh, uh, assumption ability for consciousness, no, we're, there, we get scrutinized incredibly. Um, you know, there's basic, th they don't have an exact speed of light, the physicists, they know it's $186, but there is no exact knowledge of what the speed of light is. And we have all E equals MC squared and all these theories that we, physics is based upon the speed of light, which is an assumption. It, well, it should be this, and here's how we can mathematically represent that. But it's not the true exact, you know, number or whatever. So they make an assumption based an educated guess. Well, that's what we do. And we make educated guesses and we move forward too. And maybe the two can't always talk to each other. Um, I'll give you one example of what I'm talking about, our perspective of uh, infinite consciousness and that it might be something different than your physical brain. Um, one example, and we've seen this more than once, but one was quite dramatic. And we have a research program where we do audio meditations and the participants are all hooked up real time to EEG while we're participating. We look at their brainwave patterns and we use that to try to see what is working, how it's working, how we can improve what we do. And the participants love being part of the research. So um, one day there was a man, he was a very happy, jovial guy. And he put on the headphones and hooked up to the EG. Um, there were 16 people all doing it at the same time. And he had one of those, which many of us I'm sure have had, or partly had that kind of an epiphany where you're connected to all that is, all is one, you are one, one is you. And he said, that was the most beautiful 30 minutes of my life. And he was weeping and he, it took him a while to compose himself after it was over because it was just so wonderful, okay? His consciousness was connected to everything and he felt it, he knew it, he was it. We're excited to look at the EEG because this is a big, you know, what if everybody could have that experience or live in that expansion? So we're, we get the EEG uh, readout and we look at it. 
nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was like lower than deep deep sleep. It's like your heart was beating, you were breathing, no cognition, nothing. And yet he's having the most amazing vivid experience of his life. Yeah. So it clearly wasn't occurring in his brain. Mm-hmm. Now afterwards when he came back and he started talking and trying to integrate what just happened, then the the signals went all over the place. But um, we see that kind of activity often, where which is you know very qualitative reporting at the end. But when you look at the the data being recorded physiologically, it wasn't happening physiologically. And haven't we had those results with people having OBEs as well? Yes, OBE looks like just about well when it's going on. And when you look at what we study in those that program is. Um, non-local awareness we call it okay and when you go into no time no space awareness it can't really be measured this is the big problem with the work that we do remote viewing out of body experience near-death experience all these things that science will say well your brain was dying and lack of oxygen and you hallucinated and that's the end of it and maybe that happens sometimes but with what we see is we see that consciousness, maybe your brain is a, isn't more like an antenna or a, an access channel, an access point to your infinite consciousness. And when we do the work we do, when we do meditation for you know the idea of meditation for thousands of years, meditation, prayer, whatever, um, we see that it's not necessarily a brain activity. I, they have never been able to actually measure an out-of-body experience with an EEG or heart rate variability or anything. You can't, you know, predict it. You can't see it. And um, we do a lot of remote viewing at the Butler Institute. We have a program and we're affiliated with jo- Joseph McMonagall, who was, uh, you know, one of the first uh, formally uh, used in the military for remote viewing purposes. And um, so he's quite good at remote viewing. And he kind of laughed at us, you know, oh, you're going to do it on EEG. He says, you'll never see a remote viewing on EEG. You'll see the description of the target and the processing of the information. But she says, you'll never measure that information. And he said something really wise. He said, because it's already happened. You know, before you even put on the headset, you that knowledge is already in your infinite consciousness. All you're doing is expanding to it and incorporating it and off you go. So you know, we're at a point where it's very difficult to describe in the language of science what we do. And sometimes it's the other way around. It it happens in, you know, human language. You know, you can't always describe exactly in one language a phrase from another language. It doesn't always translate the same. And so that's, I think, a problem that we are trying to overcome so that understanding is, you know, more far reaching for everyone. Well, that, but, that's it. Con- consciousness is experienced uh, more than mm-hmm. anything. Uh, and right. that, that's what makes it so difficult to measure, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure, sure. Uh, so if we don't, uh, if it's something that is an activity, then we can measure it. But uh, this is a question, I suppose, for you, Alan. Uh, so when we have these... Um, as, you, as Bob was saying, you expand into the experience of retrieving that information when you do remote viewing, for example. We, we, we can 
feel differences in our energy though, right? So it, what kind of work is being done in terms of uh, measuring uh, subtle energy? Because I know there is uh, there are some apparatus for that. But right. And we are um, at the Institute, we're not, we use a biofield imaging system mm -hmm. that's more for experience. We're not doing anything, you know, we're not collecting the data, examining the data, the results, but we are seeing that there are shifts occurring. And Bob, you've attended one of those programs uh, where you've experienced the- I actually bought the software after- Oh, you did? <laughs> after I saw it at the, uh, uh, the training or the retreat of the but, residential. But in, in the US, one of the big pushes for this research, researching consciousness includes the biofield now. That's a big, hot topic. So um, I think we're going to be seeing more, not necessarily from us, but just in the in this environment, we're going to we're going to see more because they're really putting a lot of research dollars towards that. Right. So biofield imaging would be one of the tools. Are there any other tools that we can measure subtle energy uh, today, or because I mean, yeah, Bob, there's been research done, uh, like <laughs> tests done with Reiki, for example, where they. Mm -hmm have control groups and so forth and they they are seeing uh, some significant or there, there are significant uh, statistical anomalies so that there are conclusions to be made but oftentimes they they always come back and say oh there was some uh, some weakness in the, uh, the data because of the the way they test and so forth it always seems to <laughs> fail on the on the well, there is a, a researcher in Arizona who is studying or um, has participants who are energy healers and she tests them using different devices. And I can, I can send you an email of those sp specific tests that she does. But Brian Daly, my energy medicine partner, co-trainer, he has taken this test and he's passed all of the tests and has been labeled a full spectrum healer. And it's by taking these different measurements about the energy output that's happening, um, alkalinity of liquids, you know, adjusting and um, making shifts to that. So it, it's really interesting that we that there is something that we can do, we can look at and measure yeah. that this energy is is it's acting out in a different way when it's got this direction of of healing behind it. So, so it, it, and we also have a she has a test that she does just for Reiki practitioners. And it tends to be these three tests that a Reiki practitioner can pass versus the full spectrum based on how they're using or the intention of the energy work they do. Okay, so that it's more a fact of measuring the changes that take place in the uh, object or liquid or whatever it is that you you you're trying to alter with your energy as right. opposed to measuring the energy directly. Well, there's, there's about 20 tests. So right. again, I, I'll send you that, that you can share with your audience yeah. of what those, oh, of what those uh, parameters are and what the machines are that they're using and what they're de um, mm -hmm. detecting. But it's about a, it's about 20 different tests that they do. Right. So the, uh, yeah. Is there a specific machine, as it were, that would you have a meter that goes? 
they're, yeah, well, they're machines. Bob might know something about this. Yeah. One thing that I would like to add to this, um, you know, the, the concept of subtle energy. In one of our labs, we've constructed a copper wall, which mm -hmm. is kind of duplicating experiments done a long time ago by Elmer Green. And he got some really interesting results, um, which it amazes me that they didn't get more attention than they did. So we constructed a copper wall based on his model. Only again, now we have very sophisticated measuring equipment and our research director is an electrical engineer and he loves gadgets and hooking things up and he built an amazing copper wall. And what I would like to say is we are measuring, you know, he's gotten some, you know, prominent well-known healers and other people to come in and, okay, send out your energy, do a distance healing or send out your healing energy. And in some of the cases, the subtle energy is not subtle at all. He's wow. getting voltage. I mean, significant volt, light, light bulb voltage. And, you know, the people are doing it at will. And then some of the, the way he does the measurements, you know, you can make certain qualitative determinations about not just the quantity, but the quality of the energy they're sending. And um, it, it may not be so subtle and it may be happening at many different levels other than just electrical. So um, we're, you know, we're getting some really interesting data, uh, which we're trying to discern what it all means. But it was quite, he was surprised by how much some of these people were actually putting out as in, you know, yeah, of course you can feel that, you know, it's, it's, in, it's physical, it's really there. So I pulled up the list of what they're doing and that's a triaxial meter, a data logging multimeter, a high frequency F RF meter, a GDV, which is gas discharge visualization device, change of pH of water, Alkalinity, um, let's see, broadcast frequency counter. So those are a few of them. Oh, okay. Yeah, some of those sound like they uh, belonged in the uh, the uh, car that they had in the Back to the Future. But <laughs> <laughs> not, not any instruments I've ever heard of, anyway. So, but it is interesting. I mean, literally, we do have to create uh, kind of technology from the the base up to uh, go in and try and measure these things, right? Um, but so Bob, the, the, the data that you're collecting with those kind of uh, measurements, uh, is that something that you're looking to publish or is that just kind of for internal pro uh, processes or? Uh, no, the, the data work, it, it's like you said, there's, it's, you really have to do a very formal, um, proper academic research, which is, in our case is taking years. Um, you need a certain number of subjects so that your results will be significant. You need really good protocols to, you know, for consistency. And so we are doing that and it is our intention to, you know, publish. We are affiliated with the University of Virginia in some of our research. And so uh, we're getting support from them. So at some day, at some point, we will be able to publish some, you know, very factual formal research on what we're doing in, in the copper wall and in our discovery program, EEG research. We've gotten already, we've seen really interesting patterns and we know there's something very important there. And especially in the area of gamma synchrony, which we can support 
and and study, um, we're getting incredibly significant results. And um, what we have to say when we say it will be important to the neuroscientific community. It'll be of value. Yeah, so how, how is the uh, neuroscientific community reacting to the advancements in in being able to research this this type of uh, types of you know consciousness and energy? Right. Well, and there's very little in formal publication. Um, some of it, you know, the formal science, you know, kind of hedges into that area. Some neuroscientists have no use for what we do and they disagree with it and they think it's of little value. Mm -hmm. um, but when we have, you know, five decades of people having amazing experiences, it can't all be placebo or, you know, lucky guess. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to, to, to move up our research to be able to answer those formal questions. Because I think it's important to make it available then or the understanding to grow for so many more people. I understand, you know, a, a, a person, a neuroscientist raised in a very formal school, very uh, astute, uh, that when you show up and go, oh no, it's a, it's a time-space warp or something, they don't want to hear from you. <laughs> you know, it's like everything I've done for my whole life, it doesn't mean anything if there's a time-space warp, whatever that is. So, and you have absolutely not one zero shred of evidence for your time-space warp. I cannot entertain that because you know you haven't you know met the the grade and and they're right there's there is not a lot of really significant research out there but there's enough to show that there is something going on and i think it's becoming more attractive to more people and that that unfoldment of you know validation you know if you have the best experience of your life and this happens in programs at tmi someone will have a significant personal experience that changes their life for the positive and, and something important has happened. And then they'll ask me, but was I just making that up or did it really happen? You know, was it just my imagination? And I go, whoa, what do you mean just your imagination? Your imagination is super valuable. Your intuition, your all these things that we value highly that sometimes aren't seen as first place, you know, perspectives. So, um, I think you know it's evolving and it's evolving in a really good way. Plus the scientists keep us honest so that we don't head down that metaphysical, you know, la la land. And you know, it's important to be able to describe what you're doing and validate it in some way so you can share it more easily. You know, and Bob, that's one of the things that was great about Bob Monroe. He really wanted to, you know, he brought in Tom Campbell and Dennis mm -hmm. Minerich to help it be, um, not go down that woo-woo path. Right. And I think that's why we are where we are today because it stayed in that in that space. And we tend to have a, such an interesting mix of individuals who show up at the Institute. So we'll have, we will have the, uh, you know, the scientists and the researchers and the doctors, and we will have the, the artist um, and the the monk and the <laughs> you know we it's a it's a very interesting mix of of who comes here. We have a very nice male female balance, mm -hmm. which doesn't seem to happen in a lot of these type um, programs and and organizations. Yeah, and it, it is interesting because you know when they first started presenting you know black holes and dark matter, uh, they were 
essentially philosophies. They were there was no scientific research to back it up at all. It was just an assumption that it, well, if this is true, then this must be true. So they just made big assumptions around it. Um, but that was, you know, entirely accepted that, okay, well, that's fair enough. <laughs> but when, when we uh, start talking about things like, uh, you know, consciousness and, and uh, subtle energy, it, uh, it suddenly becomes uh, a little too uh, spiritual and uh, therefore we can't, or med- esoteric, so therefore, uh, you know, we can't make assumptions. So yeah. fair enough, you know, it's, you, we have to show up and really become more astute in our in the the way that we present data and in the way we perform the research, right? Right. Well, and also, you know, the rules change. Mm-hmm. You know, science presents itself as a static unfoldment of objective reality, and we're just learning more about what's really there. Mm-hmm. But the rules change. I mean, most of my <laughs> I'll give you an example. Most of my life, Pluto was a planet. And then great to my great grief, one day I just they decided it wasn't. Yeah. And so what does that tell you? You know, the rules changed. And so, um, and that's okay. I think things need to evolve and understanding does evolve. But you know, things aren't concrete. I don't think much is. And I think as perspective changes, the you know, laws or rules or the boundaries of what reality is will change and always have. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's perceived as it's growing and getting bigger and better all the time, but not so much. I mean, you have other aspects to, you know, Pluto's a planet. No, it's not. I mean, there was there were political ramifications to that and people had rallies and it was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. But um, but it's it's really interesting how I, how culturally or socially you know, these things come into play. Um, you know, people want boundaries uh, because then they have, can identify and, and then we can separate the good and the bad and all that that gets us in trouble so much. But, um, but we do search for those to have meaning and relativity and understanding. So I think that uh, not to get too caught up into proving the science of consciousness because like you said, when you started this, what is consciousness? What are we proving? And there isn't even agreement on that. So, you know, is it objective? Is it subjective? It's probably all of it. You know, like yeah. I said, consciousness is infinite. There's nothing it isn't, you know, and, and a lot of the older perspectives, Eastern perspectives, Iraq has consciousness. Mm-hmm. No way. I mean, uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of dogs and people, oh, dogs don't have consciousness. They're just animals. Well, I'm an animal, I think. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure dogs have, I mean, I can watch my dog have a dream. Yeah. I can, you know, so, you know, I think consciousness is everywhere and nothing is not consciousness. And so it's hard to describe because there's nothing else, nothing well, relative to it. Yeah. And it's like I said before, consciousness is an experience. That's right. Right. You can't measure an experience in that way mm-hmm. unless there is a physical reaction to the change in that consciousness. Right. And I think that's brilliant experience. You, you nailed it because that's just it. And Alan was talking about the beginning of, you know, Bob Monroe brought in engineers to make it scientific too. But 
and he had his own personal experiences that changed his life. But when he created the programs and he wanted to share that and he wanted to do research and understand it, when he created those, it wasn't, okay, now follow the path that I just did and do what I did and find out what I found out because these are very real places and very real things. He said, I'm just telling you my story to inspire you to go find yours. And that's what we do at the Monroe Institute. It's not, you're not doing it right. You didn't get relaxed. You got all excited and creative and started painting something. That's not what we do in relaxation. Well, no, everybody's path is different. And we honor that. We just give you these really rich um, perspectives and expansions of consciousness where you go in then and find your path. And we see that on the EEG. If I play one of our binaural beat, you know, set of tracks called Focus 10, and I've seen this, 16 people in a room, all hooked up to EEG, all listening to the exact same Focus 10 binaural beat exercise, and nobody's EEG looks similar, nobody's, except every once in a while, you'll see these very, what I should I, symmetrical, identifiable patterns uh, that, that we've identified some of these, and we know what they look like. And when those patterns occur, it's almost like a portal. And you see, you know, the similar pattern for similar people. It only lasts a few seconds, but then it's like they go into that portal and then they start having their experience within that perspective. So I think we're good at creating portals into expanding awareness, but what happens before that portal and after that portal is individual for everybody. Right, but so are you saying that you can measure the portal, but whatever happens after that, that's when it becomes an experience. Then we have to talk to them afterwards. What was your experience? And then they'll tell you, you know, I saw my grandmother who had passed on and it was so real. It had to be real. Okay. And then someone else, I fell asleep and I could feel every cell in my body organizing and I feel 10 years younger now or, or whatever, mm -hmm. but very different experiences, all listening to the exact same audio support. But so that's why your path, yeah. When and when we do the discovery, you're that's why I guide it is meditation is such a good thing to use because you can find out where people were in the experience as well. Mm -hmm. That's at least my experience of having it, it done by Judith. She was using that to gauge where I was when certain things were happening. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And the guidance can help also help you engage certain levels of, of consciousness mm -hmm. as far as you know relaxation or you know, uh, staying, staying very relaxed, but consciously alert at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's difficult. You get too relaxed, you fall asleep and you go into that habitual, which isn't unconscious. You never go unconscious, but it's a, a level of consciousness where when you return from there, you don't have too much memory or recollection, which mm -hmm. is okay. But in our explorations, and we like to have recollections of those right. deep and what's going on you, you, you click out as i say um, there you go yeah. <laughs> and i mean that that happens you know when you go into that hypnagogic state uh when you're going to sleep so when you pass the threshold from wakeness to sleep in that hypnagogic mm -hmm. state you you kind of aware that you are a person but then you go into sleep and then you go into that uh, subconscious uh, experience right uh, right where you're not necessarily aware of your experiences, but you are dreaming and you are having uh, energy and consciousness is still active and uh, uh, performing as it were. 
So they wanted to talk a little bit about the, the, the we've talked a little bit about the history of that, the research and how it's come about, uh, you know, the obviously with the new age movement in the sixties and all of that. Uh, but, and we've talked a little bit about where we are today. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind if uh, Alan or Bob take the uh, lead here, I'd leave it up to you too. <laughs> but kind of give a background as to, you know, how far have we come? How far are we along the way? Where are we going in the future? And essentially from, to start out that conversation, from what perspective of, con uh, of defining uh, consciousness uh, are, we, uh, are we doing that research? Bob, <laughs> well, I want to hand okay. you the baton. <laughs> well, in the in the like looking at it from a technological perspective, Bob Monroe began with binaural beats and kind of a philosophy of this will really help. Now go find out for yourself. In other words, you're the adventurer, you're the explorer, you're the one who's going to benefit. And he honored your personal. He did not want to be a guru or the leader of some, you know, uh, way, the best way. Um, he wanted to give opportunity and so that people could tap their potential, figuring that if you have the tools and you use the tools, you'll find your potential much easier. But it was difficult. And uh, just briefly from a technological point of view, the uh, first, uh, focus levels or binaural beats that they arranged were called focus 10. Mm -hmm. 10 doesn't mean much. It's just a, an identifier. But those were delta signals. And one of the signals is a very deep delta that would be experienced. You know, naturally, you would see that in very deep sleep. And the other deltas are, you know, deltas where you go when you sleep. And so they found that using that, you could get to that between awake and alert state you know, between asleep and awake, that hypnagogic state. And Bob Monroe would give you guidance and keep talking to you so that you'd have to process the language so you wouldn't actually fall asleep. Well, many times people, if, you're, if you show up to that exercise and you're tired, you're probably going to fall asleep mm -hmm. because it's going to give you the, the support that you usually get when you fall asleep. Fast forward 50 years now, we're using, which they didn't have in those days, um, the, the concept of gamma brain waves, 100 hertz or 40 hertz or whatever. The concept of that was a potential, but in Bob Monroe's days, because the EEG machines were analog, they couldn't even measure 40 hertz gamma. You can't get a needle to scratch back and forth 40 times in a second. It won't, you know, the machine will blow up. <laughs> so they just didn't go there because there wasn't, a way to see it or understand it or whatever. And, and it was difficult in like binaural beats to produce a 40 Hertz binaural beat. So they came up with some other ways and they did try some things. But now we have different tools and different audio technologies where we can bring those gamma frequencies and we can do them harmonically, which our brains really like. So you can really do a harmonic gamma synchrony support while you're doing the same kind of delta support for rest, and you can go into a very deep, deep sleep process with crystal clear clarity, as clear as you are right now in your awake and alert state. Mm -hmm. You will remember everything. You will be present with everything that happens. 
but your body, if any researcher was measuring your body, you know, metrics, they would say this person is asleep. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes, and the, uh, just before we continue, the, the, uh, if we're looking at the, the way you're working with brain waves and the, um, and consciousness, what's, uh, there must be some sort of, uh, or some way of measuring where you're going with consciousness in terms of the brain waves, because we understand that the, where we, so when you're in gamma, for example, that's when these Buddhist monks, for example, they can sit in a freezer room for an hour and sweat. Uh, you know, that's, those are the levels we're talking about, right? You, you have to be careful when you really think about brainwave frequencies and then uh, what would you say, audio frequencies that are put in. Um, a lot of people make the assumption that there's this thing called entrainment. Right. And if I play four, you know, three tracks of four hertz delta, your brain will go into four hertz delta. No, that's not necessarily what happens. And it's like, um, I look at EEGs and other people have described it this way, but if you have a fire in a pit and there's smoke coming out of the pit from the fire and you measure the smoke, you can't tell a whole lot about the logs or the fire because you're measuring smoke. In other words, if I have an experience and four Hertz EEG, a lot of it comes out, that doesn't mean putting a bunch of four Hertz EEG or signals in will get that result. You know, it's not, it doesn't really work that way. But what we can see is how certain processes, what would you say, the patterns or observable patterns, EEG patterns happen. Okay, so are there supports that we can put in so that we see those patterns? And it's not a direct relationship of, you know, uh, I can get using certain harmonics of Delta, I can get high levels of gamma activity and I'm not giving any gamma support. Mm -hmm. But I understand how the uh, going back to the statement, the brain is like an antenna. If we perfect the antenna or perfect the receiver to its highest level physically, then maybe we access our infinite consciousness better. We didn't create consciousness. We didn't, you know, bring another lobe into our brain of consciousness or something. What we did is we opened that door wider. We mm -hmm. perfected the physiology and your, your, your neural system is in your whole body. You know, you've got the cardiac nervous system, the down low, the enteric nervous system, the vagus nerve. I mean, we are a total receptor. So if you perfect that with meditation, diet, exercise, you, you name it, um, listening to Monroe audio support, then you gain greater access to greater expansion into that infinite perfection that we all are. We don't give you that. You already have it. We just help you access it. Yeah. So the 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 brain waves, whether you achieve that by practicing meditation or you do with the uh, audio technology, uh, that really just sets the stage for you to act out the intention of what you want to experience. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, and that's it. It's a stage. It puts you into that place where you're showing up to receive information or you're engaging that higher consciousness. You know, it's, it's amazing how many people will go into a meditative practice or a program 
or whatever, and it'll be, okay, I'm going to meditate. And then magically, a guide will show up and give me the wisdom to complete my life with excellence. Well, it could happen, but you know what? If you ask for that, or what would my excellent life look like? And you begin to imagine that. If you engage that process, it's right there to unfold for you. So, you know, what you put in, you have to have a dream for a dream to come true. And so that's what Bob Monroe is saying. You have to, you know, go find out for yourself, find your path, you know, but you have to engage it. And sometimes that takes courage. You know, I can't tell you, the out-of-body experience, you know, is a great, you know, it's popular. There's books written. Bob Monroe was, he had had it happen to him and he became obsessed with figuring out what that was. But, you know, is it really that remarkable? I think we everybody does it all the time. You do it every night you go to sleep. You do it when you're daydreaming, but you're not, a, you don't pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's mindfulness, paying attention to your attention. What do we pay attention to? You know, we watch the drone of a television show and we just sit there and vegetate and eat a bag of potato chips or something. But we're used to that getting in that cycle, habitual cycle, where we're not really paying attention to what's, you know, you drive your car to work and you don't even remember getting there. How did you do You get in that cycle, that habit cycle. Whereas when you stop and you put something in and engage, what would happen if, or I wonder what, or how do I, and you, then you go into meditation. It's amazing how those answers and the perfect solutions are right. You know, the answer existed as soon as the question was formed, an answer was formed. Now, all you have to do is open up to it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I do that in my in my coaching practice. Uh, when I have new clients, I, I have a two-page document with only questions. <laughs> I, I give them one week and they have to sit down and just allow those questions to go into their body. So not seek the answer, just ask the question. And usually they come very well prepared to uh, the first session to experience things. Um, yes. So yeah, I, I think the asking the question is really, really important to to have those experiences because, as you say, the question, the answer is always there. You just have to ask the question, and right. that, that's the first step to opening up that portal, right? So the when we look at talking about consciousness and uh, looking at you know we're talking about out of body experiences, we're talking about remote viewing since. Consciousness is an experience, then I would uh, propose that the only empirical data you can uh, collect uh, would be um, anecdotal data. Would you agree with that? Um, Yeah, I think, and that's useful, but, you know, we can do, like I said, I can give you a a relaxation-based based on our theories and our findings, a relaxation-based uh, meditation. And we can hook you up to blood pressure, heart rate variability, whatever. And almost always, we will see relaxation, however you want to measure it. Now, you know, every time you go to sleep, you'll see relaxation, some people more than others. But, you know, we can influence physiology, no doubt. Um, but you know, so I'm not sure what that proves scientifically. If you put, if you put the Monroe Sound Science with some very nice music, and then they play that, oh look, he fell asleep. What well, was it? The signals, or was it the music? 
or was this guy just so tired? It wouldn't have mattered what happened. He felt, you know, it's so it's hard. Mm -hmm. There's so many variables in the context of an audio meditation. Mm -hmm. you know, like when we try to do things online, online pro, we don't know the context those people in are in. You know, is there a dog barking in the background? Are the kids screaming in the next room? Did the phone ring? All these things that can happen, you know, in an individual context. It's not just headphones and signals. There's a lot going on. And a person's belief system. All this is a bunch of silly hooey. It's not going to work. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter what signals you play. They're probably not going to work because they've already decided that it won't. They've created their own reality. And it could also, it could also, be, it could also be someone that's just so stressed or uh, focused on a problem or a challenge that it doesn't matter what, you know, what's happening. They're not going to be able to get there at all because it's being blocked in other ways. Right. Well, someone with PTSD, they don't yeah. want to relax and open up to the information that's waiting because it's unbearable. Right. And so they, they will fight it with everything they have. And so you have to be very careful and very individually, specifically based to incrementally help them move forward. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, that's right. Definitely. Of course. And, but the like you were saying before, you can measure with the EEG um, when they reach that portal, right? So when they, they reach that portal of crossing into a state of expanded consciousness, right? Right, right. There are patterns that identify moving into greater expanded awareness. And when, then when the people talk later, yeah, their, their story is a story of expanding awareness. Exactly. And, and that's, that's what I'm trying to get to, that in order to do research on that expansion and that, that experience, so you can say, okay, well, you... You got to the portal and something happened after that. And then they share that in an anecdotal uh, kind of way. And that then it's kind of um, someone here was mentioning in the chat about near-death experiences. Uh, you know, near-death experiences has been recorded for uh, thousands of years. Um, and there are similarities in all, the, all these experiences. I think uh, University of Virginia had actually has a program where they uh, collecting data about near-death experiences so and that's to me is an expansion in, uh, of consciousness so it's mm -hmm. the experience that you have to relay and record and it's if you can record that 10,000 times then even the science even uh, has to say there's validity too I mean we have the same problem or the same challenge I should say in uh, in psychology and uh, uh, psychotherapy, you know, if you go to the uh, health services here in the UK, the NHS, and uh, the only psychological treatment or therapy they, they offer is cognitive behavioral therapy, because that's the only one they can quantify. Mm -hmm. Anything else is, uh, is behavioral, it's experiential and anecdotal. So they, they don't offer that because they, they say there's no evidence or there's no basis to it or there's no evidence to it because there's not enough anecdotal research data collected. Uh, right. Is this anecdotal data? Is that something that, uh, you know, the, the different institutes that you're working with, Bob, that are collecting that? Yeah, I think the anecdotal data is very valuable. Maybe not in a formal academic validation, but the, it gives us information for development 
to make that educated guess of let's, you know, we're going to test everything till we find out something that works. So it gives us more education into what to test and how to test it. And, um, and, you know, things are not, you get surprised often. I remember there was, it was long ago. And I, unfortunately, I can't remember who did this, but they did us, they had this super intricate way of measure scale of measuring weight. And they wanted to measure a person's body weight at when they were dying to see if when they actually died and their soul departed, did they lose, you know, one billionth of a gram or something? <laughs> and they did that. And they really, I mean, there had to be some serious people involved to have that kind of instrumentation involved. And what they ultimately found out is that when you actually physically metrically die, when they can see that you're dead, you actually gained weight. <laughs> so which was part of the process of dying physically um not nothing there's no soul you can measure, measure. Yeah. Right. well that is very interesting i would i wonder what what actually makes you gain weight uh, <laughs> do you suddenly take on moisture I mean... <laughs> yeah, well yeah it, it actually, well it's so it was very you know minute yeah, but yeah. they they found more cases where they could actually measure a slight gain and wait when you die so hmm. yeah so i mean how do we as you you did mention before that or pose the question is it really relevant and interesting to scientifically prove consciousness uh but if we pose for for a minute that yes it, it is interesting and it is important for the for the greater public that kind of feel they need that validation from the scientific community in order to uh, take that evolutionary step forward and say, okay, well, this is something I will try out then. Um, you know, is the, you know, looking at uh, the consciousness survival uh, after death or the death of the physical and stuff like that, I know there, uh, there are research programs that are looking into the survival of the consciousness and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's <laughs> so many uh, tests that have been done in terms of uh, working with mediumship and so forth. Um, what, what, what programs do you know of, Alan or Bob, uh, that are actually looking at this in an empirical uh, way in order to create a, a format and a structure to uh, actually look at this? I do know that it's a we're having we're seeing a lot of interest and money being put at this overall subject of, of of measuring consciousness and and figuring out what's happening when we are having these experiences so i i believe we're about to see a lot more activity in that area uh, even here at the institute one of our uh, robert uh, neville one of our employees here has been making some connections with individuals that are interested in what we're doing here and also, Bob, you you will need to explain this more. But because of our unique setup, that we're out, we're here, isolated in the woods on a mountaintop, <laughs> we have a very unique situation uh, with what we can work with with the copper wall and some other some of those projects that you can't find a similar situation in, say, like a Charlottesville, Virginia, where UVA is. Mm. So it makes us have a unique setup that means we will 
hopefully we're going to be looking at moving in that direction some with our research and Ross Dunseeth, our primary researcher, is interested in moving in that direction as well. So I think the, too, the, yeah, go the, ahead, the people that come to the Monroe Institute for the residential programs are pretty, uh, what would you say, adventure seekers, they're courageous, they're, they're willing to live in a less limited, you know, belief system. And that whether they fervently agree that there is consciousness beyond death, or they just think it's a good possibility and they want to explore it more. So when you start your exploration or your meditations or your week-long program or from this day forward with the concept of it could be possible or I think it's possible and you act as if, then you've opened the door to be able to find out more about that. It's not like you're just, then you create the scenario in your mind, but you create a starting point for, you know, okay, if it was possible, what would it be like? And if I could know about it, how would I know about it? And then you start, you know, an exploration anecdotally, of course. Um, I don't know that that's something that you'll ever be able to exactly prove, but, um, and certainly the consciousness might be, you know, in an, in an expansion that we don't have the capability to even understand. That's another thing that is so important about science is that it might not be that consciousness is this idea of something that is so amorphous and maybe it is and maybe it isn't and uh, it can't be proven and it can't be disproven. So we just sit around and think about it and, you know, we do, some people explore it, some people deny it, but that doesn't make it exist or not exist. And what our ultimate infinite consciousness might be could be so incomprehensible to us from this perspective that we can only get glimpses and maybe then in the transition from the physical, you know, we move into that greater understanding and that might be the only way. This might be one big process of, you know, and again, that's speculation, but, um, you know, and I, I have, uh, like I said, I have a big affinity for dogs. Um, and, and I've had some really intelligent dogs and the one I have now, I'm pretty sure is smarter than I am because she always gets her way. But, um, uh, <laughs> I think that no matter how much I try, I could never teach my dog calculus. The dog doesn't have the capacity, you know, to learn that, but to go and find a treat or understand, you know, when, if I just make certain movements, she knows it's time to go for a walk, you know, mm -hmm. very smart that way. But there is, it is incomprehensible to a dog, the concepts of calculus. Mm -hmm. So consciousness, ultimately, I believe, is kind of like that for us. Right. It's hard to measure because like you said, we can't even identify it, but we know there's something really big and important about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the, what, I suppose one aspect there is where we can verify in the real time. And the, I know they've done a lot of research out in the Stanford, the Stanford Research Institute. Mm -hmm. and I know you guys do it too, uh, in terms of remote viewing where you have someone essentially gain information about the location they've never been to and so forth and so forth. And of course, we have the famous CIA dossier that you guys had page 25 of and uh, uh, whether you were hiding it or not, <laughs> we'll leave, uh, leave to the, another time. But the, uh, but the, uh, the fact that the government and their military institutions, not only in the US, 
in Russia and other countries uh, have programs that have looked into it and actually come to some conclusions about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it shows that you know there is validity too. Obviously, they try to debunk it because they don't want anybody else to mess with it. <laughs> right. So, no. so yeah. there, there there are aspects that we can look at and actually uh, scientifically and empirically look at. And what what kind of work has been done in that? Well, I will say from some of the the uh, research that I've done, there are other places in the world that their uh, ability to explore and experiment and use subjects is far less restrictive than what we have here. And I'm not saying that our restrictions are bad. You have to be very careful with your participants or your subjects and you know, be, you know, have their best interest in mind and all that. But um, you have you know, uh, some other belief systems that don't agree with what you know, our perspective of consciousness you have, you know, the parameters of formal investigation. It's hard. It's hard. And um, in other countries, you know, what we consider to be experimental and exploratory, they consider to be reality already. Yeah. You know, so the, we're, you know, it's not the same across the globe as to what is consciousness and how do we perceive it and believe it as part of our lives. Um, it has a far more pervasive and accepted place in other places than you know, like say in the United States or in Europe. I know that there has been uh, studies done, uh, research studies done on in particular remote viewing and I think Joe uh, has been part of many of those. He's, he, I suppose he is known as a, one of the mo- more uh, preeminent uh, remote viewers uh, out there. Um, are, are these some of the have you guys at the Monroe Institute, have you uh, done any uh, research programs around this or uh, are you, uh, have you been connected with other programs that have done research studies and presented papers on, on uh, remote viewing, for example? Uh, well, the, the research that we're doing right now in our discovery program, and we've been doing it for three years now, um, has to do with non-local reality and as an aspect of, uh, or say as a, a, a scientific measure, we use remote viewing and out-of-body experience. Okay, yeah. And Joe comes, Joe McMonagall comes and talks to the group about this is what remote viewing is and here's sort of, you know, and we talk about how to do it. Um, Bill Buman, an out-of-body expert, comes and talks about out-of-body experience and how you might engage that. And then we have the participants do that. So we'll have an exercise that might be just music with some gamma synchrony and some other signals that you know we are working with. And we'll say, okay, we're going to listen to this and get into this non-local state of awareness. And then we're gonna give you a target to remote view. Okay. Well, Joe said, no, they, if you're gonna do that and you told them that, as soon as you said that, they've, their consciousness is connected with the target. No, okay, fine. So we do the thing, and then afterwards, they remote view the target, and they draw and sketch and whatever. And then we have a very formal evaluation of those target sketches or drawings or descriptions. And we have uh, judges and a, a, a very, uh, what you say, easy to, to do statistical analysis on way of judging the validity or the um you know, the, the, the type of a hit, like a, a third place, first place, whatever mm. match for your data. 
Like you either, you didn't say anything right about the target or first place match, you nailed it. You described this target beyond any reasonable doubt. And as we've been going through this program for three years, we are getting more hits from more people, more first place matches. And it's kind of, I always have this argument <laughs> that, you know, what happens is there'll be a picture in an envelope of a target and that's your target. And, and you don't know what it is. And the, nobody in the room knows what it is. And then you remote view that target. Then later upstairs, a judge will look at a board with four pictures on it, random pictures, but one of them is your target. Then they look at what you wrote and then they pick of those four targets, they give a first, second, third, and fourth place match. And so if they're seeing a first place match and it happens to be the actual target, we call that, you know, a, a very significant. But, and so we, we, we measure that and we get some significance for that. You know, we are influencing people's ability to remote view accurately or giving them the space where they can do it. We're not giving them the skill, we're giving them the space for that to happen in a better and better way, we're improving. But what I always say is, well, yeah, but you measure it. You're doing your statistics based on one out of four. What will they get? I said, but that target was a, of an infinite possibility. It could have been anything in the universe, mm -hmm. anything on the planet, mm -hmm. any person, place. It could have been well, back. So it's just a control measure, right? Right. But we do that as a control so that scientifically we can say, look, our signals and our protocol has improved remote viewing skills. Yeah. Now that's something the academic community can look at. But if a person gets a first place match, that's way more than one out of four. Good job. That's oh, one absolutely. out of infinity, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, so, and when we start seeing, you know, we had one participant, he'd never been to the Monroe Institute before. He didn't even know what remote viewing was. And he was our top scorer. You know, he had no training, no background or anything, and he was able to just take off and get with it. So I think that's really, really important to be able to validate that non-local experience has happened because you hit a first place match with the remote viewing. Then we go back and look at the EEG. What do first place matchers EEGs look like? Are there similarities? Oh, yeah, there is. Look at this. And so that's kind of how we're working. We use the OBE RV as validation that non-local awareness has occurred. Then we can go look at that EEG and see what it, you know, what process led up to it or what process led to the, you know, describing the target better or more accurately or whatever. Well, that's super cool. So when, when are you hoping to uh, publish this data? Well, COVID is kind of, you know, it's kind of hard to, uh, to do EEG research. Okay, if, if we go back two years, when did you expect to? Uh... Uh, well, yeah, we're, once we get back, in, we're actually going to do a discovery program in um, December it's this different. year. Right, it's the first ones in years, a couple of years now. And so, um, you know, we'll get back on track and we're getting close to, you know, significant number of participants where we'll be able to publish. I, I think they're planning on two papers. Mm -hmm. um, so it's coming, but you know it's hard to tell when until we get right. some more freedom. But we're not we're not five ten years away. We are no 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 I, a couple uh -huh. of years so a year. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to seeing that uh, paper coming out. So because that you know when you bring that kind of statistical reliability to it, then the the mathematicians out there would go well. 
yeah, you can't fake this. Sorry. And it's it's like the uh, Princeton uh, Consciousness uh, Project, right? Or Global right. Consciousness Project. Right. Um, you know, as, as statisti- statisticians, they can't you look at it. They look at it and it's like, well, this is impossible. You know, you, right. you can't you can't statistically this is impossible. Right. So therefore, there must be something to it. Right. Right. Well, and, and you bring up a really, I think, a valuable part of that, too, is if we can prove something statistically and show, you know, significance in our findings, then that opens the door to so many other people to bring their skill and talent and academic ability to want to let's pursue some of this research. This you is remove really an assumption. Right, right. So that will have a whole bunch of other people adding to the knowledge and the understanding. And as that happens, maybe in our lifetime, we'll have a agreed upon definition of consciousness. And I, I do think that's happening. You know, I think mm-hmm. that, that that's a big movement that, again, a lot of dollars are, are behind. And we've got organizations who are making it a primary focus that have a lot of power. And by that, I mean financial power. Mm-hmm. So at this point, I'd like to open up the floor if uh, any of our quote-unquote audience members would like to uh, ask any questions. It's a super exciting topic, this. I could uh, go on talking forever, but uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, in this uh, consciousness construct, we are uh, constrained by time and space. So. <laughs> so I know there were... Barbie, go ahead. Hello. Hi, Alan. Hello. Nice to meet you. How are you doing? Doing great. <laughs> so this is awesome. And uh, I have 100 million questions, not just one. But um, I would just kind of love for the audience to know, maybe from the perspective of the Monroe Institute, when you have people who are really gifted, especially, you know, I mean, I know I, I, I could do all sorts of crazy stuff, you know, a long time ago, but a lot of that stuff got turned off because other people told you like, oh, no, you can't do that. Or, oh, no, you can't do that. And then you basically reconnect with that part. But what would you suggest in regards to people who have gifts, but they really haven't learned how to harness it, so to speak? Because I think the best part is that when we can take these innate gifts that we have and we actually have a form of channeling it into specific specificity and you know in the last two years that's been kind of my manifest journey with that kind of stuff but for the Monroe Institute the empirical data I'm a total empirical data nerd so I love to see the facts and the data because if you know it's kind of like when someone evaluates a teacher they say oh my teacher was pretty and she was nice and it's like (laughs) and it's like well no it's like well then they weren't an effective teacher it doesn't really matter so how how does the Monroe Institute take kind of like because I'm sure you get people all over the world that come to you and just say, you know, my child can do this or have that. I know they're working with with children that are blind, working with their third eye so that they can see. And you guys even had that experience with Christopher in a class with the gateway experience too of someone who couldn't see at all and completely had the opportunity to see from there. So I guess in a nutshell, to condense my question is how would you find somebody or when they come to you, cultivate their talents and find the gifts that they have to be able to either remote view or do out-of-body experiences, et cetera. So it's, it's experiential and we just, we have programs with different purposes. And so it really, it's, as Bob was saying earlier, it's very unique to each individual. Uh, we don't have a specific program. Maybe Bob, we should think about that. <laughs> that, that um, along the lines of what you were saying, Barbie, but I think individually, as you participate in our programs, that happens for you. Bob, what would you like to add to that? 
Well, yeah, I think that it's a good point. You know, people with, I think at some level and from whatever perspective, everyone has special skills. We all mm -hmm. do. And, you know, yeah. some people acknowledge them or from your childhood, you were aware of it because you came in with it and then they told you it's not real, stop that or whatever. Very common. But I mean, we've had, we get some wild and crazy people at DMI. <laughs> I mean, no limits. Just when you think you've seen it all, you haven't. And yeah. I'll be honest, I, some, I don't understand it. I try, but I can't, but, but I will. But we've had Nobel prize winning scientists, chemists. We've had, you know, Tibetan monks. We've had, you know, I don't even know the number of different countries and the ages from teens to nineties. Um, it's, you know, I've had, I had one workshop where there were people from 12 different countries in one workshop. Yeah. So um, it's, it's their personal journey that we, uh, you know, and I've heard that we support their personal journey and they'll say, when I was young, I had OBEs all the time and I'd stop. And like what you just said, you know, I used to have all these skills and I you still have those skills. And if you don't honor it within yourself, you know, you let someone else shut you down, but you're a child or whatever, you didn't really have a choice or an awareness of that, but now you do. So go back to those they're yours you own them and you can re reacquire whatever you came in with and that might be a lot more than you even remember mm -hmm. so that's the path that we try to help people find and then um there carolyn mace it's m-y-s-s there's a spiritual a medical intuitive and now mm -hmm. as a lecturer and teacher um she and I, I watched her um, on a video. She actually said this, and I was watching the video that she attended the Institute and had not realized that she, she had forgotten about her abilities and that attending the Institute helped wake that up again in her. And she was one of those people that had been shut down as a child. So I, I definitely, I know that when you come here, those kind of experiences can happen and it support, it seems to be very supportive of waking up those gifts and of self-evolution. It's just, it, it just, it just happens. Well, I suppose that's where the uh, sound technology is, mm. uh, can have a critical impact because if you come to the Institute, you come with an intention and you release yourself or surrender yourself to that process, then the, the sound technology will bring you to that stage and uh, state for that experience to take place and then the experience will take itself further uh, along that route right and it's just it's support yeah. it's support mm -hmm. well, exactly it's a, it, it, what i found was that the sound technology allowed me to maintain uh, support me in that brain uh, wave level uh, longer than I might have been able to do myself on any given time. So sometimes I can sit in uh, that state on my own for an hour, no problem. Other days when I'm a little more distracted, it will be more difficult. But then the sound technology is certainly there to give that uh, support, uh, right. more rigorous support, right? Kara, mm -hmm. right. you have a question? Yes. Um, hi, Alan and Bob. Hi. Um, hi. Have you found any new trends in your data research or the responses people have 
in your programs? I know it's been COVID time, but any kind of overall view? I guess I need a more clarity on what you're asking. Um, so when you take people through programs um, or doing the research, do you see um, that the research is going off more into a, I don't know, something from the universe, let's say, a certain sort of um, uh, sound or frequency that shows up more that is directing you in a certain way more than it had in the past? I will say this. I think that, yes, honestly, the way um, we have a lot of new people in our technology area, Paul Citarella is the guy who actually led the charge on our app. And um, he's very technically oriented and he's a really smart guy and he's really creative. And, and he has other people that came in with him for that purpose. And now they're working on other things, um, our technology actually to improve it and see what else can we do. And we're literally having new ideas and new expressions, some of which will get tested in December of weekly. New ideas are coming in weekly. And part of the, the push for that, like you're saying, are we seeing new things with, with participants? Yes. What we're, I'm starting to see in you know programs and training for like the last several years before COVID even, and that is that people show up to mm -hmm. programs and they're much more sophisticated in consciousness studies and understanding and whatever. And I can, in our, like our introductory program, Focus 10, where you learn to turn inward and relax. Though I'm not getting anything. I do this all the time anyway. That used to be a big novel experience for almost everyone. And now there's a number of people that they don't really get excited about the program until day two or three because they've already been doing day one or two. So mm -hmm. as a society or as a, you know, of the people who do come to Monroe Institute, the level of conscious awareness or uh, attention to your attention, mindfulness is higher. It's growing. And, and I so, also, go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, I also see that people are stepping into their gifts more, their sixth sense mm -hmm. gifts more than more I've separate. ever witnessed, yeah. Do you see a generational uh, shift? Do you see a difference between, say, my generation in the 50s uh, as opposed to those in their 20s and 30s? Yes, definitely. And so that gives us the ability with our research of the next latest and greatest. There's a community or a large number of people who are waiting for that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not some weird thing you saw in the late night scary movie or something. <laughs> you know, it's, it's accepted as at least potentially possible or yeah. very exciting to explore or for many people, hey, that's reality and you guys are doing it. Thank you. And so, you know, it gives us a chance then to to help. It, it gives that, what you say, that wave, that social or whatever wave to push us forward then to the next level and the next level. Great. Thank you. Uh, Barbie, go ahead. So like all of you guys, I could geek out on this for like hours on end, too, but I'll be quick. So one thing that's really, really interesting to me is um, I know people who are working in artificial intelligence and other things like that. And I love the idea that we're, you know, moving into this kind of fusion of a hybrid in certain kinds of ways. And I'm not a 
a techno adult, but I'm also leery of having that be kind of like where it kind of is the takeover as opposed to, you know, something that supplants what we're doing. So what, how do you guys address spiritual ethics? Because that's something I think it's also in the sense of where it's the same thing. Like I know that, um, you know, I do intuitive healing. So, and Tula and Christopher as well, those things, we always ask for the highest permission of the, the being that we're speaking to from their higher selves, we get permission, et cetera, et cetera. So obviously everything can be used for the light and it can be used for the dark and the Jedi and the, the Sith Lord world as well of Star Wars. But from that perspective, um, I mean, obviously you guys can't be responsible for that kind of stuff, but is that something that you address? Cause I, I'm hope I'm hoping too that the people that can also do the remote viewing things, I don't want to have it also where people don't have permission to do different things and they're just kind of poking around places that they're not supposed to be. So I just would love to hear what your take is on that. Yeah, so we, we definitely, totally, yeah. go ahead. We yeah. totally honor participants' experience. Mm -hmm. And like in this discovery program where we do the remote viewing and there's a target and whatever, as I, over the three years we've been doing this, I found that the gamma synchrony signals, the harmonic gamma synchrony signals were improving, improving, improving. And then one day I got too good at it. And they got so out, we call it super consciousness. They got so out into super consciousness. The idea of doing a remote viewing was just ridiculous. And so they, they came back with nothing because they were connected to everything and, and they didn't care about your little experiment anymore. They wanted to be in that place and, just, and that's all that it meant, which was good because we're seeing fantastic results. We're not getting any non-local markers of, oh, they got the target. They didn't care about the target. Unfortunately, Bob had some technical difficulties at this point, so we totally lost his uh, audio, but uh, we continue nonetheless. I will say to, to Barbie's um, statement or, or question, when, when we um, teach the different or train the different programs, we do talk about that subject and about how to be respectful and in integrity uh, when you are doing these kind of things. So that is that is a key part of our training. Excellent, thank you. So I think that uh, kind of uh, tells us that uh, we're coming to the <laughs> end of today's discussion. And uh, but I think what one of the things I do when I come up against someone who is kind of challenges me as to the work I do in terms of consciousness, energy healing, all of these things. Um, the first question I always ask them, how big is the universe? And they come up with some notional number that science has presented them with, whether it's, you know, 400 trillion stars or something like that. Okay, well, what's beyond that? Oh, I don't know. Well, is there anything beyond that? I don't know. Well, could it be, is there, are we in the bubble and there's something beyond that? Yeah, that's possible. Okay, where where does it end? Yeah. Well, no, it's infinite. Well, what are the possibilities of alien life? What are the possibilities of consciousness being infinite? What are the possibilities of anything that you can conjure up being a possibility if the universe is infinite then <clears throat> those possibilities must also be infinite mm -hmm. so that i'm going to leave you with that kind of statement that you know there 
really, if you believe in infinity, and I don't think there is any question whether infinity is a function or not, um, then everything else falls into that realm as well. Yeah. Everything is infinite. So I appreciate uh, Bob and Alan and all our audience members showing up today, and hopefully your uh, uh, sound has improved, Bob, that you can uh, at least say goodbye. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, nope, it's still there. We, we can see you and we can see your energy at least, Bob. So, uh, I think stay away from the light. <laughs> so thank appreciate everybody showing up and thank you for bringing beautiful energy and uh, just bringing uh, wisdom and intelligence to this very important topic and uh, uh, allowing us to bring that message out to a broader public. So thank you for the work that you guys do and uh, thank mm -hmm. you for the work all of you do on, as individuals in your own, uh, in your own way. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. So I hope that brought some uh, new insights and wisdom to you. And uh, both Alan and uh, Bob are very intricate into all of these subjects. So they bring uh, certainly a lot of uh, wisdom and experience for us to bring into our own uh, understanding of ourselves and the world around us, and especially the world around us that we can't see. Understanding these aspects about ourselves uh, as, you know, what is my consciousness? What is my subtle energy? Are all part of the uh, journey here in this physical reality. And these are, as always, you know, topics that we discuss in our uh, 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 coaching workshops within the Alchemy Experience. So uh, if this is something you want to dive deeper into and explore within yourself, then uh, feel free to. Uh, contact us through our website thealchemyexperience.co.uk and there you can book a 30-minute free consultation uh, to see you know if we are the place for you to uh, look into these aspects of yourself a little deeper so we look forward to uh, seeing you back at the next podcast next week friday 11 11 british time or perhaps uh, you'll contact us through our website and we'll uh, be more detailed discussion about uh, these aspects within yourself. In the meantime, have a good one. Take care.